Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Rajiv Singh. As CEO, Raj leads Accolade, the Seattle-based company providing millions of people and their families with an exceptional healthcare experience that is personal, data-driven, and value-based so that they can live their healthiest lives. Last month was Accolade's sixth anniversary. Congratulations. In 1993, Raj co-founded his previous company, Concur, the global leader in travel and expense management. Concur went public in 1998 and grew to more than 800 million in revenue, over 4,000 employees, and more than 25,000 customers before being acquired by SAP AG for $8.3 billion in 2014. Raj's desire to change the world extends into his personal philanthropy as well. In March 2020, as the COVID pandemic unfolded, he rallied a group of like-minded donors to launch the All in Seattle initiative that raised funds for local organizations on the front lines. Raj partnered with other Seattle area leaders to raise $10 million for Seattle for India to send crucial healthcare supplies to address the crisis. Singh graduated from Western Michigan University with a BSE. Today, he serves on the board of directors for several Seattle headquartered companies, such as Avalara, Amparity, Seattle Children's Hospital Foundation, and the University of Washington Foundation. Welcome, Raj. Great to see you. Great to see you, too. Awesome. Thank to you for you. being on. Okay, we're going to hit you with some rapid fire. What was your very first job? Uh, I delivered papers when I was 10, Detroit News. Uh, and then I was a busboy when I was 14. Nice. I, that's like a lost uh, job. That was so big when we were being raised, right? The, the whole drop off the newspapers. They don't have them anymore. It's like crazy. Oh, no, what are those kids doing? No, it's like fully grown men now delivering newspapers. <laughs> I don't know. I, I was making decent money at 10. I was nice. bringing it home. I love it. Um, I know you're into music. So who's your favorite band? <laughs> Oh, I love music, and it's that's a really hard one because I'm I'm all over the map in terms of my uh, different genres. Taste. Yeah, I love hip hop music. I'm a huge J Cole fan. Uh, I love uh, I love Citizen Cope. I love geez, I love The Cure. Man, I love a lot of bands. So you've got a nice eclectic uh, taste. I love it. There's almost nothing I won't listen to, to be honest. Well, how about country? Did you go to the Eric Church? <laughs> I was I like, yeah, you can have my tickets to that. I did not go to the Eric Church concert, but I'll tell you this. I am endeavoring to become a country music fan. I think I think it's, it might be a little misunderstood by music snobs like us. And so I think we got to, I'm going to try. Okay. So if you could be famous as an athlete, musician, writer, or actor, or something else, what would you mm. choose? Oh, athlete, for sure. I've Since I was a kid, I grew up in Detroit. I've always wanted to be the quarterback of the Detroit Lions and finally get them to win games and win a championship. I wanted to be the Super Bowl champion quarterback of the Detroit Lions. <laughs> it's not too late, Raj. <laughs> you know, I figured out. Do you play football? Around, 
I did. I did. My dad used to make, my dad was a first generation Indian immigrant. And so he, he would see me, I was this 150 pound kid playing football in Michigan. And he's like, I don't even understand what you're doing. You know, you're never going to play professional football, which is not a, like a super inspiring thing to say to a 14, 15 year old, but it did dawn on me at some point that, oh, maybe I'm not going to be a pro quarterback. Yeah. Um, I wasn't and even a quarterback in high school. You have, you, you guys have two kids, right? Two. One Bo- sophomore in college and a senior in high school. Yeah. And did anyone, well, play, fo- did anyone play football? Did your son play football? No, nah, he plays everything else, but he did not, he did not play football, which I'm actually kind of happy about. I'm, I'm okay with it. Well, I'm asking because I'm always curious how uh, smart people look at football today, because it's obviously controversial. And I'm, my son's very upset that I'm not letting him play. I'm like the overprotective uh, Jewish mother. <laughs> I probably would have let him play, Shauna. I probably would have let him play if he wanted to. But it, uh, luckily for me, soccer turned out to be his game. Like it's the game he loves. And so oh, uh, nice. soccer and basketball is what he loves. Love it. Okay. So talk to me about these past, uh, I guess, almost two years during the pandemic. What's the best thing that happened to you or something that you hope to take away from this period? Best part is clearly family. We took our company public in the pandemic, Shauna, and I, that would have been three or four months on the road gone. And I did all of that for my house and I could sit down and have dinner with my kids every night. This was before my daughter went away to college. And so that part of the story, it's a blessing, a huge blessing for me. And it's, it's hard to say anything's a blessing in a tra- time of tragedy like the pandemic, but that was magic for us. Yeah. But I think it, be, given that it is um, such a traumatic time for so many, I think it is important to look at some of the blessings because there are, there are some silver linings for some people, um, yeah. some key takeaways. So I always love to ask that. Um, I saw okay. my mom and dad almost every day. Almost every day during the pandemic, I saw my mom and dad. And like that had not happened since I was a teenager. And so it was pretty cool. I love that. Um, okay. So what is something that you would get up early to do? Like really oh, I early. Do get, I do get up really early to exercise. It's the only time I can find. And so, uh, you know, like you, Sean, I just want to be young. I just want to stay young. And so like, I got to, I got to get up early now. What do you do for early. your workouts? earlier and earlier unfortunately yeah it's harder and harder to stay young uh, i'm a runner and so i'll run and i'll uh you know i'll do the mundane stuff i'll play it's all but i'm i'm uh i'm working hard and harder yeah. and harder i'm day. a huge believer in exercise so i get it i didn't work out yet today right. i think so too um okay what's your superpower or your special gift it's such a cliche stupid question but i'm curious uh i think i can see uh other people's superpowers. I think, uh, I think I see the best in people and, uh, and it helps me put teams together. I think what I'm best at is putting teams together. And, uh, and it's because I, I think I really do see, uh, what magic other people bring. That's amazing. And that is a, a very unique skill set. Um, okay. This is my final rapid fire and we're getting into it. Tell me about an interest or a hobby that you haven't yet pursued. Oh my God. So many, right? So many. Uh, I would love, I don't think this is ever going to happen, Shauna, but I would love to learn how to play an instrument. The guitar, mostly. That's what I'd love to learn how to do because yeah. it'd be cool, but but I don't think it's ever going to happen. You know, I think it's easier today than ever before because of all these apps. My husband's a guitarist and mm. several people that I've asked that question to on this podcast have had the same answer. Everybody wants to play the guitar. <laughs> that seems like something you could absolutely do. So anyway, so you grew up in Michigan. You said Detroit. Are you into Eminem? Of course. Of course. Uh, yeah. I'm, as I mentioned, a hip hop fan. And so uh, 
Eminem is uh, is a part of the story. There's a lot of great uh, hip hop out of Detroit. Big Sean's from Detroit. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of good stuff coming out of Detroit. But yes, I grew up all over the state of Michigan, uh, mm. both in a small town called Kalamazoo and around Detroit. Yeah, and so you said your your parents are first generation, or you're first generation. My dad came over from India uh, to get to pursue his education and college. Uh, and uh, my mom came over a few years later. So he left his wife and two children behind, my bro- older brother and sister in India while he found a place to live, uh, found an education. Like about three years later, he brought his wife and two children over and then I was born here in the States. Oh, wow. Okay. And so when you think about your childhood, um, how much of how much of being uh, a family from India, I guess, defined how you saw yourself in the context of the rest of the world? What was the what was, I guess, the population like in Detroit? Oh, definitively, definitively. I mean, I was an Indian kid first because my parents were different than everybody else in our neighborhood. And, and so we were, you know, if you think about the incredible risk that a man who barely has any money takes when he leaves his country, leaves his wife and kids behind and goes to a new place to live, that's pretty massive. And that defines him and his life. And that's my dad. And so we got to the United States. And it went by the time I was born, uh, we were living in a tiny little house in a part of Detroit that you wouldn't really go to today. And, and for us, uh, my parents were hell bent on being Indian. They were, you know, a lot of first generation immigrants want to have this guilt complex about leaving where they're from. And they want their kids to be as Indian as they would have been if they were still being raised in India. And my parents had that going for a while. They were super strict, really uh, uptight parents. And, you know, my mom's wearing saris. My dad's like super proud of his heritage. Both of them were really thick accents. And so it was definitional for us as kids. You know, we were Indian kids and it was pretty clear to the neighborhood that that was true. Mm -hmm. And all of us as kids responded to that differently. Well, the reason why I ask it is because I'm slightly obsessed with culture and just different people's cultures. I married a, a Persian Jewish man and like mm-hmm. the culture is so strong, you know, and yeah. I'm always like, you know, where, and all of his cousins and all the different relatives have had different ways of identifying and different ways of keeping the culture alive or assimilating. And, yeah. and also just t- today, there's so much hate that I'm always curious. And, and I think it's really important to keep these stories alive and people's heritage stories alive and stories of origin. Yeah, I think that's awesome, Sean. I think for us, you know, if you're an immigrant family, you're, we moved a lot because when my dad got a better job, he could afford a better house in a public school district that was better and education was everything. And so we would move, we, we moved probably six or seven times, but by the time, from the time I was a kindergartner to the time I graduated from high school, which meant, you know, you're back then, Sean, back in the Stone Ages, right? You leave a neighborhood and you're, you never see those kids again. And so mm-hmm. you're moving into. Yeah, there's no Facebook. There's no Instagram. There's no, yeah, totally. You're not keeping in touch, right? And so you move and you start all over, even though it's moving around Michigan. And so there was, you know, like I, I was not the most popular kid in school a lot of times because you're, you're showing up as this new kid and mm-hmm. different in towns that don't always love different. Uh, but yeah. it was, you know, it, it was miserable many times, but uh, to me, it first led to me running from my heritage. I just wanted to be like everybody else. I didn't want to be Indian. I came back to it and I realized like, okay, well, that this is who I am and I better, I, I need to embrace it because otherwise you're sort of empty. And I didn't realize that until probably college, to be honest yeah. with you. 
your fifth grade friends, whoever they are, wherever they are, what would they have said if they could see where you are today? Would they be like, oh, obviously that kid would have gone on to be successful or like, no, he was kind of like a jokester. Like who were you in fifth grade? Uh, I was pretty serious in fifth grade because I was, you know, I had Indian parents who were like on me. My friends in college would be, uh, and I talked to many of them now, would be shocked and and are shocked by, you know, I I was a, I was a, uh, I I was not the most serious student for the first couple of years of college. And so you go through these waves, but yeah, uh, we had the strict Indian parents. You had to let it rip in college. (laughs) And I did. Trust me. That's great. I let it rip. So, so from the outside, because I, I know you peripherally, and we have a lot of people that you know, you're a very um, influential person in the tech world. I would say for sure. And I see you as a few things that I would I would define. Obviously, you're great at putting together teams, which is something that I'm glad you recognize. Um, you've done so many deals. Like you're a deal guy which I, it sounds a little, I'm not saying it in a sleazy way, but you're yeah. great at putting together deals, it seems. Um, I'm curious, what's the first deal you ever did what, that made you be like, oh my gosh, I did that, or I got a higher juice out of that? Uh, you know, I think I look back uh, to my life at Concur, which is my first company, the first company I was a part of that I co-founded with my brother and Mike Hilton. And you know, at that stage of your life, you're 23, 24 years old, you don't really don't know anything. I remember the first time I sat in a room and it was, we were working on a deal with Citibank and Citibank is like, you know, three, $200 billion company. And the CFO of Citibank came into the room. And I remember thinking, oh my God, I'm talking to the CFO of Citibank, which sounds kind of geeky right now, but I'm telling you, I'm like a student of business. This guy walks in and I'm like, this guy's a big shot. And you know what was the best part about that? He left, and it was the first time I had the realization. We ended up doing a deal with Citibank. Uh, but he left, and I remember flying home and writing a note to somebody saying, uh, that dude is just like the rest of us. Like, exactly. We, we can run with all these guys. Like, you know, it, you read about these people in the New York Times, and it turns out, they all put their pants on like everyone else. Absolutely. Can, That's we, how I feel with you. Ball. I'm like, I'm talking to Raj Singh. Oh, shut up. It's wow. true. Okay. So the other, the other, these are two other things. I just have these, well, three other, I, I have a feeling that you're very good at inspiring others to, to not just put together the teams, but to let them um, flourish and to bring out the best, I guess. When did, that's a leadership skill. When did you realize that you had leadership skills or when did they first start showing up? Like, was it on you the playground or was it in college? Uh, you know what? You know what's interesting, Shauna? I was never the best player on any of my sports teams. I don't think I've ever talked about this before. I, I was never the best player on any of those teams. Uh, but I was often the, the kid who people would listen to. And uh, and I think, I, I like to think now, who, who I have no idea why that was true then. Uh, I like to think now it's because I'd like, I actually do genuinely care about those other people and uh, I'm super competitive. I want to win, but I actually genuinely give a damn about the people around me. And I think, right. uh, I think people actually gravitate towards people who care. And people Well, right. It's like, believe. you see it as like their wins or your wins versus 100%. their wins or your losses. Like it's competitive, but in like, we all rise together. Not like you're going to win. That means it's me a loser. <laughs> Yeah. And I think that's, that's the essence of every great team. The essence yeah. of every great team is like people pitching in for each other. And, yeah. uh, 
and I, I like, you know, I'm hopeful that that's me. Yeah. I see another theme in you, which is that you are an incredible community leader, philanthropist. Um, I think some of those are values that are instilled probably by your parents, I'm guessing, or where did you learn that? Like, it's important to give back to your community. Certainly my parents, my, uh, my mom and dad, actually, when I graduated from college, decided they were going to go back to India. So, right. They came to the United States, spent 20 something years here, uh, and went back to the village where they were born, which is not comfortable by the way. Like it's in the middle of India in, in a, in a state called UP, uh, the Pradesh. And they opened a school there, uh, for girls because the girls in that village oh. didn't get educated. Uh, because oftentimes if by age 10 or 11, the parents would bring them back to work on the farms. They were worried about teenage pregnancy, you know, all of that. So they pulled them out of the schools. My parents went and like literally went door to door in this village saying, we're going to open a girl's school and you're going to send your kid here and you can trust that we're going to look out for them. They started with like five kids or six kids. And now there's 800 girls who are graduating from this school. Oh my school. gosh. That's incredible. Yeah. Have uh, you, I'm assuming you've been, sure. have you been there? Oh, yeah, yeah. Can you imagine? No, like, can you imagine if, if you had a, But I'm just saying, like, what do you, when you get there, what, um, I guess, what emotions come over you? You must be so uh, proud to be associated with your family. You know, you have to be in awe of those two. I'm in awe of those two. And if, if you That's think incredible. a Jewish mother is tough, try a Hindu mother, like <laughs> not showing up to her school, if you going to kill the Well, my God, and when I say have you been, that's kind of obvious that you would have been. But I mean, like, at what stage did you go when there were six kids or 800 kids? Did you start uh, there early? First time we went, we brought the kids. And so now the kids are like going to college because they were like four or five. And uh, and that was the first time we went. We brought the kids into India. And they we, they got a chance to see like 100 kids going to school. And for my kids, it was super eye-opening. Like, hey, these kids are fighting to go to school. Uh, they're, they're battling. They have to fight their parents to get to school. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, all of that for me comes from them. Look at, like, they're 78 and 77. The pandemic hit. We all, all of their kids here, my sister and brother, were like, "We got to get you the hell out of India." We got them out of India. They came back, got their first shot, went uh, their two shots, went back. Then the pandemic like racked through India again. We got them out again, and then they got their booster and they went back. They're not. They're wow. like this. So passionate. Life. That's their passion. Yeah. That's amazing. And I didn't know that. That's an incredible story. Okay. We got to get on, but I have so many questions for you. I'm also, um, the, the fourth thing that I see in you, um, that's clear now where you get this from is just, um, how much pride you take in being a good father, a good husband, that that is your top priority, your family. Oh, and I think too. sometimes people are trying to kind of run away from their own childhoods. And it sounds like the opposite. You're like, no, I want to try to emulate in some way. I, you know, I think we all find things that our parents did that we don't want to do. Uh, and that's true for me too. You know, uh, my parents were like hovering, like overprotective parents. Mm -hmm. And I try not to do that with my kids, but, uh, but yeah, Shauna, like I think everything good in my life comes from my family. Like it comes out of that. And it doesn't mean that I don't have like a whole bunch of other things outside of my family. But I think my my strength comes from the foundation of my wife, my kids, my mom and dad, like my family. That's where it comes from. Yeah. So you got to nurture that. Like if you nurture that, you know, I found it just took me a while to figure out that you got to nurture that. And then all the other goodness, like all the other fun comes yeah. from that. And that's uh, that's yeah. like a life that 
I understand right now. Super important message. So you said you were kind of just like messing around those first couple of years, Western Michigan University. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So, well, I and, went to another school. Yeah, I saw that. Out and then ended up there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I saw that. That actually makes me happy because I think we're talking about these hovering parents and I've obviously got three kids that are teenagers and it's hard not to be like, well, you got to make the best decision and go to the best school. Cause opportunity comes from there. And you're like, when well, then you see some rush saying, well, I, I went, I dropped out. Then I went to this other school, kind of messed around. Like at what point did you realize um, that you wanted to pursue a career in technology? It was early days. I mean, tech was kind of like, what is that? Ish. Early. It was early. I mean, I was lucky actually two things happened. One, like I started school and my dad wanted me to be an engineer. I didn't want to be an engineer. Yeah. And so I decided to rebel <laughs> against course. my dad. And uh, and I realized somewhere in there, like, oh, wait, this is my life that I'm screwing up if I keep this up. And so, uh, but my brother was, is seven years older than me and he had gone, he went straight to California. He also dropped out of school and went straight to, went straight to California and discovered like this place that was this magical place, San Francisco, that was blowing up with new technology companies. Uh, I went to see him when I was in college and I just, I, mean, I realized like these people were different and they weren't different in terms of like being better or worse. They were just different. Like they were like these believers that, Hey, we can build stuff that changes the world. And I'd never been around people like that. And, uh, and I just thought whatever they're having, I want to have that. And that, uh, that changed my life. And so he, in many respects, his, courage to go west uh gave me the exposure that that drew me to the west as well and so i don't know if you listen to the podcast or if you listen to podcasts but i love the podcast how i built this and they just talk about those early those early days of like how did you even come up with the idea like if if we were there in a fly on the wall with you and your brother and and your and your partners what's the conversation oh hey do you have an idea and then you come up with the team where you have the team and you're like, now let's try to find something to build. Like, how does this I think all it was, happen? It was more the latter than the former. I think Steve and Mike were working together on a different company that, uh, that was selling a lot of software to salespeople and salespeople kept complaining about expense reports, which is where Concur started. And I, and then we I, re- I remember was, those days because we used Concur. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Awesome. So we, we decided we were going to do that. And honestly, there was a lot of conversation like, really, you know, are we going to work on expense reports? Is that what we're doing? Cause it's not right. very sexy. Well, you're solving a problem and not a sexy problem, but a problem, which it's makes it sexy. <laughs> right. A lot of people want want it to be solved. So that makes it sexy. Yeah. And so uh, that it was more, we had some guys and we wanted to work on something and it was really Steve and Mike were way further ahead in their lives. Like Steve was like 30 and Mike was 28. I was coming out of school. And so I was along for the ride to, to be honest at the outset and, uh, and hopefully contributed a little bit more later down, down the road. And so what were your roles early on? Did you define those or was it like your typical startup where it's like, just, you know, drinking uh, yeah, from the fire yeah. hose? It, it was like a revolving chairs, actually a little Mike was the CEO to start. Steve was participating as an investor, but was working somewhere else because we had, we needed money. And, uh, and I was, I actually wrote the first prototype of the, uh, the application. Like I was the product manager, uh, Steve eventually joined as CEO. And, uh, eventually I became, I think like a, a, a number of years later, I became the president of the company. And so, uh, like we moved around a bit between yeah. the roles, uh, but 
it was just because the company evolved and we evolved as humans. Yeah. So Steve, so Steve funded it out of the gate. He's like self-funded. Steve and Mike, Steve and Mike funded it out of the gate out of their own pocketbook. I didn't have a pocketbook at the time. And so (laughs) you're like, I'm just a dude out of college. (laughs) Yeah, I get it. And so what was the business model? How were you planning to make money? Like charge people per seat? A long time ago. This is, you're going to make fun of me now, Shauna. So like, just hold your tongue. I should probably Uh, know this. I prefer to not over-prepare for these podcasts, even though you're probably like, I answered this on 50 interviews. You should know this. No, no, no. We we were selling software in boxes. Like, do you remember Egghead Software? Oh, yeah. I'm old school. I get it. Yeah. So we were selling in boxes. And then fortunately for us, because that wasn't going to work long-term. I mean, it it got us off the ground, but it wasn't going to work long-term. Along came uh, the internet in 1996, 1997. And that was when we really started like, oh, okay, this is going to, there's a new way to do this and we got to get to that. And yeah. the, the good good part of that story is we had the courage to just ditch our old business model uh, and go. And no. Uh, and so who was the bit, who was the very first like big hire that you made, and how did you convince them to get on this train? Uh, we had a bunch of people that we came on like from you know we, we were sitting in a the first. <laughs> this is a good uh, this is a good story, Sean. But first interview, first time we put like ads out to, for engineers. Uh, we were still in my apartment. It was Mike and me in my apartment. We worked in the apartment. So that was the only address we could put on the ad. And some industrious young man decided like, he's just going to go to the office and hand his resume to the hiring manager. And it was my, it was my apartment. It was like eight o'clock in the morning on a Monday, which when you're 23 years old, working until one o'clock in the morning, you're not all put together at eight o'clock. I opened the door. The guy hands me his resume. He's like, I don't think I want to work here. Uh, anyway, we, we did. We did end up hiring a bunch of really smart people uh, from uh, from schools like MIT, et cetera, that were uh, a part of our story. So that's hilarious. So the guy shows up and he's just like, hands you the resume here in your apartment making your eggs. I'm literally in boxers and a t-shirt. And uh, and I'm kind of like, wait, what, what do you want? And uh, he hands me his resume. We did not hire that guy. Did not. Hire, well, but, it's very industrious. I like it. We, we ended up... Uh, bringing people in with the idea that there was something big here that we believed in. And, uh, and then we started finding people who were executives at other companies. Honestly, some of those hires didn't really work out really well for us, Sean, uh, because we went a little too big, a little too fast. Yeah. Um, it's a it constant a struggle for people when they're, when I'm dealing with clients that are in startups and they're like, we want this big person out of like Microsoft. I'm like, well, I don't know. You know, you got to have, yeah. you got to look at all these things and kind of try to not overhire too early. That totally makes I, sense. I agree. I agree. You got to find people who still want to do the work, not just tell people to, what work to do, you know, depending upon the stage of your business. Totally. So who was your very first big customer and um, who was your first customer to kind of re-sign on? Because obviously you can, everyone can get a big customer and then when they actually like double down, that's when you know. Uh, the same customer, Monsanto was our first customer. And it's, here's the quick story. They were coming to our offices. We only had like 20 people in the office and they thought we were bigger than we were. And so we had maybe 30 people maybe. And, uh, and, so, and a lot of times people were not showing up until like 10 or 11 o'clock because again, they worked all night. It was mostly engineers. And so we had to tell the engineers like, hey, Monsanto's coming to visit. You got to wear like normal clothes <laughs> and you have to show up to the office. Make us look box. a little bit legit. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like no, like don't come in and flip flops and shorts. Like you got to wear normal clothes and you got to show up by eight, just this one day. And we crossed our fingers and it happened. And so uh, we signed that customer. That was our first corporate customer. Uh, 
and then things kind of took off from there, Shauna. Like things got, we got lucky and caught a little wave. Yeah. I mean, there's so much to talk about with Concur. Um, I'm curious if, if you could highlight a few of the key takeaways as far as learnings that helped you um, as you launched Accolade. And also just maybe I'm sure you mentor some people and give advice. Like what are some of the key takeaways from, from your experience of 20 plus years? From Concur? Concur? Well, Concur had ups and downs, Sean. It went up and then it crashed. Uh, in 2000, it crashed and our stock traded below a dollar for like a year or two. And so there was some down periods, some really down periods, but I, I would say the, it obviously it ended on an up note and, and the big takeaways were you have to have some courage behind your convictions. You're going to have to bet your company more than once uh, if you really want to grow something material. And those bets are scary, but either you have the courage or you don't, and you're going to have to have courage behind your convictions and believe in things. The second is culture, people, values, like it's all that. It's everything. It's everything, everything. And if, if you lose sight of that, you'll, your business will deteriorate either quickly or, or slowly, but it will deteriorate. And I think the last for us was uh, uh, you have to build a core of people who believe like a, a core of a team and that team has to stick together and, uh, and you got to show faith in each other through some really difficult times. I think you do those things and set two and three are obviously correlated, but uh, mm -hmm. you do those things. You got a shot, like no one's guaranteed victory, but you got a shot. And how important is it to you if you're giving advice to a young entrepreneur to think about um, who to partner with as far as investors and how to choose a board? Oh, it's huge. It's huge. And I don't think people really understand, it, especially first time, second time entrepreneurs, even second time, but first time entrepreneurs, you need capital and it's, and it can be so, it, it is a bruising process going to ask people for money and, and, you know, everyone's super friendly and wants to meet you, talks, talks it up and then says no. Uh, or they keep you just warm enough to see what other people are going to do. Exactly. Exactly. So everyone feels, Oh my God, this is a great idea. It's a great yeah. idea. Great idea. Until they don't give you the money. And that process is so hard on entrepreneurs who believe so much in their idea that they grab the first dollar that comes in. And that can be really dangerous. Like you really have to vet your investors, just like you would vet your head of sales. Like you really, it has to be the right fit. And, and so building that list of what the right fit is, uh, is, is important. And then vetting is even harder. It's harder mm -hmm. with investors because most investors say the right. Well, maybe just talking to some of the other entrepreneurs that they've invested in to be like, how were they in the downtimes? You know, did they, did they stand by you and did you feel like scared to take their call or was it your partner that was like, Hey, let's go solve this. That's a hundred percent the point. That's a hundred percent the point. Can they tell you the truth, but can they do so in a way that says they're on your team? Like they're, uh, that, that they're in the boat with you as opposed right. to, uh, as opposed to hovering over in the helicopter saying you're doing it wrong. Yeah. Interesting. And I'm sure some of those relationships, when you went back, did you ever go back to some of the same people who said no to concur when you were raising money for accolade? Uh, I didn't, but I, I feel like I'd be this. like, you don't even get a chance to talk to me. <laughs> I, I can tell you this. I, I know. I remember, I can tell you the names of everybody who turned me down at accolade of course. Uh, for sure. Uh, and I, and I, I will never say to them a lot, but I'll tell you this for a fact. Uh, I think about those people all the time. It kind of gives me a little fire. Yeah. I do love hearing that from entrepreneurs when they talk about either, um, you know, doubt kind of fueled them. Like I'm going to prove you wrong, you know, or somebody who's like, I, I've always known that you have it in you. It's almost seems that it's better juice to have somebody doubt you. 
It seems that that seems to inspire a lot of entrepreneurs. Most that I've talked to have said, yeah, it's, it's like, uh, screw you. I'm going to show you. Especially the ones who said like, like, hey, I'd fund anything you do and then didn't fund. Uh, those guys, I remember. I And, and, it, and it totally fuels me. It absolutely yeah. fuels me. Yeah. Um, so weren't people mostly thinking you were going to kind of chill for a little bit after Concur? And then I remember just all of a sudden it was like everywhere. I was like, Accolator, here he goes again. I'm like, they're off to the races. How did you, like, how much time did you take? And how did you decide that you wanted to get, go at this thing again and, and in a big way? I took nine months, uh, Shana. It took nine months. I had some fun with my family, uh, but I was studying. I knew right away. I knew immediately upon leaving Concur that I was going to do something. And probably not for all the right reasons. I think I've matured a little. It's been seven years since I left Concur, six years at Accolade now. But some of those reasons were like, I, so much of my identity was tied up in being an entrepreneur who was running something that I didn't, that I didn't know how to fill that hole. And I had to, and I felt like it had to be another company. Like I just had to go do that. That's who I was. But also what, what else would it have been? Seriously. I mean, it didn't have to be at uh, yeah. this magnitude at this level, but I don't think you could really half ass things. Sounds like that's not uh, your DNA. It's definitely not, but I probably should have taken a little more time. Honestly, when I give people advice, I say like, you got to remember, like, understand your why better. And my why was a little off kilter, mm-hmm. uh, but it it's worked out. Meaning, I yeah. found my why. Yeah. Through the What's process. your why today? I mean, your your why you're you're changing the world. Not to say that expense reports don't, but accolade is a whole nother level. I mean, you're solving a very real problem. Some of the facts I saw on the website talking about how many Americans, 65 million Americans, don't have easy access to primary care physicians. Like I was shocked to read that, and um, it says one in three adults lack a primary care physician. Like these are things that we don't have to consider, but they're, they're real. And then it says on average, it takes 24 days to schedule an appointment with a primary care physician. It's crazy, Shauna. And, and right now, like, so primary care is one example of that. If you live in an inner city, or if you live in a rural community, it's worse than those numbers. It's worse. Uh, and if you have a job that's, you know, hourly, that you don't get t- paid time off, you're making a choice as to when you can. So now finding a primary care physician who sees patients after five o'clock, who's on your bus route, right? Like that whole thing, it just gets really, really complicated. So I think good news, the cloud gives us an opportunity to say, well, I can deliver primary care virtually. And before COVID, everybody thought, no way, that can't be done. And post COVID, everybody understands it can be done and it can be done at scale. And so we can solve these problems. We can solve the primary care problem. We can solve the mental health problem. Right, like finding a mental health specialist in any place right now. It doesn't matter inner city or rural or just in, in Seattle, finding a mental health professional who's seeing patients, you can't do it. But we have to rip down some rules too. But I, you know, I'll uh, we can talk about that later. But we have to rip down, rip down some silly rules that don't make, make sense in this country uh, in order to make that happen. But yeah, like this is to me, like my why now is this is a broken system. It's such a broken system. It's It's my last job. And (laughs) let's take a run. Like, let's take a hard run at fixing something big. Yeah. And And did uh, you ever, did you ever think that you were going to go directly to consumers or like if somebody doesn't have a company that's using Accolade, how do they access your services? uh, You can get to it right now. There's a, uh, there's a site called plushcare.com that where you can get to our primary care physicians and there'll be a site eventually that uh, that has the Accolade brand on it. Uh, but we bought a company in the direct-to-consumer space called Plush Care uh, that is doing exactly that, mental health and primary care 
direct to consumer. You pay a subscription and you can get to that doctor anytime you want. And, and we're hiring docs from the top 50 med schools. Uh, they stay with you forever, meaning they're really primary care docs. They're not urgent mm -hmm. care docs like a lot of other telemedicine solutions are. And, uh, and you just get a better experience. And so and how, how do you attract them? How do you attract the doctors? What's in it for them? Oh, man. It seems like, like it's, it's a much a, better model. It's, a, it's so much better for these guys. Like primary care in most countries, uh, well, I'm going to geek out on you a little bit. In most I know I love this. I'm learning. In most developed countries in the world, we spend, they spend 15% of total healthcare costs on primary care. In the United States, we spend 7 or 8%. Uh, you want to know why? Because the real money is in specialty care. That's where everyone wants to go because we have a for-profit healthcare system that makes money the more procedures we deliver. And so uh, while the rest of the world is putting more into preventative care, primary care, getting people the care that they need before they get ill, uh, we're doubling down on specialty care. And so primary care physicians are overworked. They hate their jobs. Like they're, and the, if you were to think about the employee engagement scores for primary care physicians at the health systems where they work, they're really, really low. But think about if you were, if you went to med school, got went a hundred thousand dollars into debt to go help people. That's why you went to med school. And then you got shoved into a job where you were told you got to see 20 patients. You get, yeah. seven, you get yeah. 14 minutes a patient yeah. and we don't care if you, if you can follow up with them or not. Like those people want a better job. And so we're not having a hard time hiring, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And so what's the exact business model? How does the company make money? For about 170 million people in the country, your employer pays for your healthcare. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got your deductible, but they're paying the remainder of those costs. Uh, we go to those employers and say, our service is going to, we're basically going to give every employee and their families a primary care doc, a mental health specialist, and a care team that runs down, like once you get into the healthcare system, the bills, the benefits, all of that stuff are a nightmare. We'll run down all of that stuff for you. And when we do it, your people are gonna be healthier. And th this magical thing happens when your people get healthier and they're happier, your healthcare costs come down. Mm -hmm. And so for employers right now, this is the joy of, of where we sit in our journey. It's a full employment environment. If you want to attract employees, you better do right. something different. Oh, it's and, a, I get asked this all the time. It's like, how are you going to get them? And a lot of people make their choices based on benefits. And sometimes they don't even understand it. And it seems like Accolade's helping with that too. People have no clue what's even available to them. That's the whole, that's the business model. The business model is we'll lower your costs while while making your employees. But you know, honestly, Shauna, if you're if, if you were to dumb it down even like to the simplest idea, rich people in this country get concierge medicine, and they pay thirty or forty thousand dollars a year for it. What if we could give that idea in a virtual form, way more affordably, while lowering costs to every employee in your family, every employee in their family in your company, and and people are getting it, and so. It's a it's it's a business model in part certainly enabled by the pandemic uh, in uh, making it more understandable. But I think healthcare is going to change that way. And these like giant facilities, I'm I'm pointing out the window here in Seattle uh, that have been built over the last twenty or thirty years. People don't want to go there anymore. Yeah. They want healthcare and, virtually. They want healthcare in their home. And they want it quickly. Exactly. Convenient. Yeah. And so these are this might be a really dumb question, but do you stick with the same doctor or you, it's like telemedicine, like who's available in this strong you stay network? with the same doc. Now, okay. but just like, in a regular. Yeah, like my like guy's off. Like, this person's on he, call. He's off for a week. Yeah. You get another guy on the team who yeah. has all of the data. The part the of same. our business that's unique is we're gathering all your insurance claims data, all your electronic medical record data. So everything is 
is on your app available to you. You can see all your previous history, but more importantly, you walk into your doc and she knows every condition you're facing, every other doc you've seen, every medication you're on. She doesn't have to ask you any of those questions because we've gathered the data for you. It, it just allows, and to also know like the benefits your company provides. And so your, if your company has a weight loss program, cool. She can, she can prescribe it for you and get you registered in it. Like all of those things, primary care docs in a, in a health system can't do. Well, I want them curious. Um, I have, I, I think we have, well, we have 20 internal employees and a bunch of contractors out. So about a hundred employees, like, is there a minimum size company that's your target um, uh, customer? We'll, we're going to get to you, Shauna. We're going to get to you. Like we're going to get to a, a 20 person company or you're going to get to me because I think about our smallest customer right now is about a hundred, a uh, hundred employees. But, uh, but you know, we're going to, we will piece by piece. We started only selling to large corporations six or seven years ago. Uh, we're getting to smaller and smaller businesses and smaller and smaller businesses have the same problem. Like you, you know, this better than probably I do. Healthcare costs go up on you and you're, you're, you're like, there's very little you yeah. can do. Well, and the, the costs are going up. And then I also want to keep my people. So I'm increasing, like we went from covering 75% to now we cover hundred percent because I, I need to make sure that my people don't get, you know, picked off by Amazon or exactly. Accolade. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You know, so I, I want to, we've got great people and I need to do what I need to do as a yeah. small business owner to keep them. Um, one, and another part, just switching gears a little bit, you guys are a real leader, um, in the space. I recruit for a lot of different technology companies. I, I don't see people coming out of accolade. I don't see losing people. And I usually can kind of see trends of like, Ooh, there's a mass exodus. No, yeah. but, but for real, you've built an amazing company. I love Brit. I've known her for years and I think she's done a great job building out your people, uh, part of the business. Um, at, at what stage did you realize how important, um, diversity and inclusion is in your kind of approach to recruiting? Uh, yeah, I, I wish I would. I wish I could say I knew that from the outset and I didn't. We, I don't think, I think we, we understood how intentional you had to be about that later in our journey at Concur. Meaning, I, of course, we believed in these principles, but it, it, believing in them isn't enough. You have to apply them and you have to tangibly operationalize them. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think fortunately for me, when we started at Accolade, I was 47 and had some experience and realized like, okay, good intentions aren't enough. You like, you actually have to put uh, structure in place. And, uh, and then I think you've got to put, and you mentioned Brit, you have to put professional uh, human resource capacity, or we call it people and culture capacity in place uh, that can teach your business about its importance. It's in part about what the, the operational structure is around DEI, but it's also about training every operating manager in your company about why this matters, why it's good for their business, why it's going to improve their teams and their performance. Uh, and you know, good news part of that story, Shauna, for me, like if you look, I, I got I, when I joined Accolade, I had ten like white uh, over sixty, uh, over seventy in some cases uh, men on my board. Uh, today, I've got a nine-person board with four women a lot more diversity uh, in, in, of every ilk. And it's a way better board. There's nothing wrong with those 10 guys, by the way, they were great. But this board gives me more value, more input, and helps guide the business in a way that's way, way better. Diversity in those rooms matters a huge, huge amount. And I can tell you personally, I've experienced that it's not talk. 
Yeah. Well, I think when people think about it and they don't understand it, they're thinking about it from a perspective of like box checking, like, oh, good, we've got diversity, but we're actually, you know, now you're living it. So you're seeing that it, like, it doesn't matter what color your skin is or what gender you are. I'm getting diversity of thought. And those Bingo. things come, those things come from the fact that there's diversity of skin color and gender. And so it's just like, oh, I hadn't thought about it that way or that perspective, um, which I think is, is super interesting. I couldn't agree more. I like it. It's, you know, when you read something that you didn't know, like when you read a book, I love reading. Like you read a book about something you had no idea about. It's like so hydrating for your brain. You're like, ah, oh, this is awesome. I had no idea about any of this. Yeah. I think that's the same thing about perspective, man. You hear people talk and you realize like, oh, I didn't even see that angle. It was right. a total blind spot for me. And that to me is hydrating. Like that's, that's what do you, what do you like goodness. to, what do you like to read Raj? What kind of books do you like to read? Uh, I read a lot of business. Uh, like right now I'm, uh, I'm plowing through slowly, but surely Daniel Kahneman who's like a, uh, Nobel prize winning behavioral economist wrote a book called noise, which is really, you know, the joy of being a CEO, uh, Shauna is you, when you read a book, you can be like, Hey, you guys are all going to read this with me. Cause like we, sh we should apply some of this. And, uh, and hit, this book is about there's bias in decision-making for sure. But a lot of our decisions are also impacted by the noise around us. And so mm. you could have two different judges seeing exactly the same defendant and their sentencing could be wildly different. Or, and, and, and this is obviously relevant to me, two different doctors seeing exactly the same patient come up with two totally different diagnoses. It's not always about bias. Sometimes it's about noise and sort of understanding what are the noises. Like that's interesting, just how to cut through it, I guess. Correct. And so like, yeah. I read books like this, like, and I, to me, they're all about like, Hey, how do I apply this to my interview process? How do I mm. apply this to how, cause you know, interviews are the same story. Uh, how do we apply this to like, how, how do we implement that in our software? So our doctors aren't impacted by it. Like, yeah. You've got the growth stuff. mindset. It's awesome because sometimes people are like, I have it all figured out. Look at me. I did concur and I'm doing accolade and you've obviously had tremendous success, but you have the recognition that like there's so much to learn and so many perspectives to, to hear. And I Man. love that. Yeah. Tell yeah. me more, tell me real quickly about evolve. Uh, evolve was our customer conference. We did this, uh, we do a customer conference every year. I really wanted, I desperately wanted to do that in person. We had it all lined up in Arizona and then Delta variant came and we had to shut it down. So we did it virtually. And it was, for us, we were unveiling a new category. We'd just done some acquisitions. We wanted the world to know we're a bigger, broader story than we were before. Yeah. We did it. We did that. And uh, then we had some fun. We would have been more fun in person, but we had some fun. I got a chance to interview Andre Agassi. Uh, who I went to school with Andre. I went to boarding school for tennis in eighth grade, and he was... You there. were at the, the Bradenton Academy? Yeah. Well, no, it, it was in the town called Bradenton, but it was Boletary, yeah. Boletary. Okay. Yeah. So you're like a, you're a serious tennis player, Sean. I was. I played it. I played in college, Pac-10, but um, I don't play anymore. I like, oh. I like to play uh, ping pong and I like to play pickleball and I will play right. tennis. I'm going to play some tennis soon, but so you've got these different companies that you've partnered with. I read like Sword, Health, Carrot, Vivante, Verta. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. There's so many. Are there, um, I guess, where are you going with all these partnerships like are there categories that you haven't partnered with yet and if so, so like yeah who, think about who it are this those way. companies think about it this way shot if we're doing primary care and giving you we're like your quarterback for all things healthcare. we're going to be your primary care mental health we run down all your claims and benefits issues but they're still downstream care and that downstream care but here are your big cost drivers and here are your big impact drivers in most of these populations diabetes management 
uh, musculoskeletal, musculoskeletal meaning hip, knee, spine. Those yeah. are the areas. Everything hurts as you're talking right now. I'm like, <laughs> yes, I have all those pains. <laughs> but, and, and the idea is that physical therapy is an option before we get to the knife, right? You know, there's a, there's legions of data that says the majority of back surgery should never have been performed. We should not be operating on the spine as often as we do. And so the idea for us is acknowledging you're not going to fix a $4 trillion ecosystem by yourself. And so uh, we partnered with a company called Verta in diabetes management. We partnered with a company called Sword in musculoskeletal physical therapy, but just doing it over your phone using sensors, et cetera. Uh, we partnered with a company in the RX business called the RX yes, Savings. Yeah, Solutions. I love that. Like the idea is we ha- we have to find like-minded partners. And to the- and maybe the big premise, Shauna, as, as we look at partners, is we're saying the healthcare system in the United States was built on what we, the, the, in the, the tech, uh, sorry, the healthcare geek speak would be fee for service. You get paid when you deliver a uh, service, which means if you get paid to deliver knee surgeries, fire away, do more yeah. knee surgeries. Uh, the world has to shift to a value model that says uh, you get paid when people improve, when their clinical outcomes improve. So if A1C levels go down, if uh, if your behavioral health scores and there's, there's, it's so obvious listening to you talk. I'm like, it's so basic and obvious. I wish we could just shake up the whole system and be like, duh, that's, that's the intent. Right. And so we only partner with companies that believe the same thing. And if the, if you do, that means, okay, we'll put your fees at risk. Don't get paid. And if you're going to do diabetes management, don't get paid unless A1C scores come down. Right. So uh, it's the, it's the same, it's the principle that we apply with our customers and we, and we, and we find partners who are really good at what they do. Like Verta's doing this incredible work where they're actually reversing diabetes. So our CMO, our chief medical officer, actually put his mother on the program. She'd been on insulin for 20 years. Uh, she's off insulin now. And and so, like, you know, I didn't know when I took this job six years ago that you could actually reverse type 2 diabetes that way. And uh, mm-hmm. and so there, there's there is a bunch of innovation happening in the space. Our our view is we've got to, we have to find a way to mobilize it. Because there's a lot of incumbents out here, Shauna. Look, most people, most of the incumbents in the healthcare system don't want it to change because they make enormous amounts of money on it. Of course. Well, I have a naturopathic medicine doctor, and then I have my primary care doctor. And sometimes those two are obviously at odds. My primary care doctor is like, here, take a pill. And my naturopathic medicine doctor, I'm thinking about nutrition and exercise and all these other things. Um, It'd be awesome if it was all just under one kind of login, and I could just kind of have a topographic view of my situation. Because I'm always trying to kind of hack it all. Yeah, totally. Um, I think, and, and yeah, a lot of people are like you. A lot of people are like you, saying like, I don't. It's not just Western medicine. I want to try acupuncture. I want to try naturopathic medicine. I want to try Eastern medicine uh, that's different. And uh, and you ought to be able to do all those things. And by the way, the healthcare ecosystem that's paying for it should pay for that too. You know, they should pay for these other systems, these other folks. And a lot of times, what you hear from the orthodoxy is, well. That's not proven by clinical studies. Therefore, mm-hmm. you shouldn't. You, we're not going to pay for it, which is code for I don't control it. I don't make money off right. it. Therefore, I'm not going to pay for yeah. it. Yeah, and then I'm out. And so, yeah. do, are you doing any? This might be a, also a weird question, but do you do any sort of integrated partnerships with like a Fitbit or something else that's kind yeah. of like? No, no, it's not a weird question at all. It, we can fact, also fact, measure and track our behaviors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we we, we partner with companies like LabCorp, where you can well, they'll actually come to your house and draw blood, or mm-hmm. you can go to labs that are less expensive than going to the health system. Uh, We partner with, uh, you know, 
increasingly we're partnering with, you know, we're going to send scales into the home, we'll send blood pressure cuffs, et cetera, that kind of stuff. Love it. And so the idea is everything that you can do virtually without leaving your house, that's what you want to do. Like, I mean, like we could talk about return to work, Shauna, right? I'm in my office here in Seattle and I wish there was more people here, but a lot of people want to stay home. That's and, where we're at. Yeah. And healthcare is even more so. Like going to the hospital is a miserable experience. I don't care what you're going through. And uh, if whatever you can do in your house where you're comfortable and where your family is, that should I, we should be enabling that, not discouraging that. Yeah. Well, I'm super inspired by what you're building. I mean, I have my own company, but I'm literally like, hire me. <laughs> hire me. <laughs> I wish that there were two of me. I would. That, there's very few companies. I'm like, I want to go work for that company because I'm passionate about what you're building. It's really, uh, it's really cool. It's, you know, the, the cool part about it for us, Shauna, is like, it's the number one, the, the recruiting and, and you get this, like, you, you have to have something unique about yourself that's more than the money and more than the benefits program, even though we believe in the benefits program. And for us, it's like, hey, come here because you want to change the world. Like, if, you, if, if you're a great engineer, and I'll use engineering as an example, and, and you want to go maximize the throughput of the shopping cart at Amazon, like, oh, that's cool. Totally go do that. Uh, we think we can actually, we tell stories every month about people's lives that we had a massive impact up to and including saving their lives. And like, yeah, dude, you can't, you can't get that. Well, from, from a recruiting perspective, Raj, I, the, the whole world has changed and I've been doing this for 27 years. And these last couple of years, the sentiment around how people make decisions um, on their next career move have changed. I mean, it's not always, we've had people turn down, you know, 400,000 for 200,000 based on, I get to touch the product or I'm passionate about the project or the, the product or this team is incredible. Like I think people are much more connected to their values through the pandemic yeah, and they're making decisions that. that are completely different than, than they were. Recruiting's gotten turned on its head is I guess the net net. And I don't think as many people are thinking, let me go turn this widget on at Amazon. They're more thinking how to, and especially even this next generation is even more so I want to change the world. Yeah, so, can I put in a plug for this next generation? Yes, like, I think you that, can. I, I think they get a bad rap. Like I'm pro these guys. I do. They I am too. Some of my best team members are this generation. I, they want to hold capitalism accountable, and they want to do shit that matters. And yeah. like, I don't know what's wrong with that. I think are, it's incredible. Are, are we so skeptical that we can't believe that they want to change the world? Like, right? Uh, we we thought that. And, uh, and I still think that I'm 53. And so I, I think this, uh, all this talk about how millennials are, are, uh, are, you know, are too pristine for the, for the, for the world and, you know, want things perfect is BS. Like I, I I'm pretty fired up about this generation. I think they're, I, I think too. they're bringing us good things. Yeah. So speaking of doing good, and I'm going to let you go in a second, but I have a couple more questions. Um, you know, you and Jill put together an awesome group. I read about it in your intro, putting together a group of business leaders to start the All in Seattle to raise money during the pandemic. That was March, 2020. You just like, you moved fast and raised 27, more than $27 million in less than 72 hours. Like, how did you do that? Oh boy. You know, first of all, TJ, Susan McGill, Heather Redman, Matt McElwain and Carol, like there was a lot of people that got involved in that. Uh, Here's what happened uh, in, from my view, and Jill gets way more credit than I do. Yeah. Uh, the world was, it felt like the world was coming to an end in many respects. Like it was just, you just saw these restaurants and these bars and everything closing and you thought, what's gonna happen to those people? And so and this is, I think, a joy of this town. I don't know that this happens everywhere. 
Uh, but I started calling everyone I knew and said like, hey, what are we going to do? What is our plan? What are, what are we going to do to help these people? Because we knew the government would eventually come, but the government wasn't going to come because the government just doesn't do anything fast. And so we said, okay, uh, let's call everyone we know. And it just was like a giant phone tree, really. And uh, and then we said like, hey, you know, I think one thing we did do a pretty good job of, whether it was TJ or Susie or me or Jealous, people would say like, hey, I could do this much. And we'd say, hey, you know, the world's coming to an end. This isn't like your run of the mill crisis. And so you can probably do more. You can do more. And uh, and people bellied up. Like people yeah. want. Were you blown away by how much you raised? That's a lot stunned. of money. Stunned. That's great. Still and so what's the, st- what's the status today? Like last year, my company for our holiday gifts, and they hadn't done this before, but I called all in Seattle and just said, can I give this as my gift to my clients? And then they can choose which, or because you're supporting so many different organizations, but it was a win-win. I actually, I I loved it. So what's the status this year? So so here's what's happened. Uh, That thing, which had no organizational structure, it was like nightly conference calls between all these families, and you know us sort of cobbling together what we were going to do next and how we were going to how we were going to make sure choose the, the the charities that we would support etc we eventually picked up and handed in a in an organized way to the Seattle Foundation they turned it into all in Washington yeah. and uh, and so now the Seattle Foundation has put an operating infrastructure behind it they're still really focused on delivering directly to uh, directly to charities, so making sure the money gets there fast. Uh, but all in Washington is all in Seattle at this point. Yeah, that's that's how it was starting to transition. But I was just curious where it was like today. A perfect idea for you guys to put together the money to support all different organizations versus like this is just the one problem we're solving. There were so many problems to solve. You know, we didn't know what to do. That was what ultimately we, we thought anything that took too much time, like if we had to set up our own 501c3 and distribute the money, it was months and we just knew people were hurting yeah, right that then. day. Right. And, and, uh, and like we were hearing these stories, you know, Angela stole at fair start. Of course, we were yeah. hearing these stories about, you know, food insecurity. People yeah. in our city were starving. Like, can yeah. you imagine? Uh, and it's still happening by the way. Well, she, uh, Angela, and, and then my friend, Alyssa, who's actually my EO farm, she has Gourmando. They, they combined, they fed so many families during the pandemic I mean, they did so much incredible work. So many beautiful human stories of people who just put their own personal needs aside and did the work. Uh, I I, I felt like that experience for me was like, um, it was like filling filling for the soul, you know? Yeah, you got a little bucket full situation. I get that completely. So given your career and all the um, things that are pulling at you in a million different directions and and your success that you've had, how do you um, make sure that you're raising your kids uh, to have your drive and grit given that they haven't had to want for as much as maybe you did in your generation? Uh, you know, that's such a, that is such an important question. It's one that every parent thinks about. Uh, we try to do it, uh, you know, for, for me, I'll give you the simple answer. There's a bunch of things we try to do in, uh, on our day-to-day lives. Uh, but the biggest thing, Sean, like for me, a big chunk of starting at Accolade was I wanted, they were old enough now, 11 and 12 at the time when I got started or 12 and 13 to see me struggle because it was hard and I was getting my ass kicked early a lot. I'm still getting my ass kicked on some days. 
but they got a chance to see it like that. There's nothing easy about building things and that I had the insecurity in these days where I would sit at the dinner table with them and say, like, I'm not sure if we're going to make it. I don't know if this is going to work. And I, I think sometimes I see parents who want their kids to think they got it all figured out and they know every answer. I want my kids to know I don't have all the answers. We don't know. And out there is hard and the world's going to kick you sometimes, but you got to keep getting up. And, uh, and I, so the, I, to me, the lesson is grit and resilience. And I wanted them. And I think Jill demonstrates that in different ways for them, but I wanted them to see that I wanted, and I was, I was determined to not hide any of it from them. When I was insecure and thought, Oh my God, this is going to be a disaster. I said it, I said it out loud. And I, I'm That's hopeful important. That, that, that <laughs> Hopefully they were listening. <laughs> so um, I'm curious because you're, so you're doing so much and with the kids and, and working and getting up and working out, what do you do when you just want to like completely uh, just have fun and not be oh. working, not be reading your business books? Like you just want to chill. Uh, well, I love sports. I love Seattle sports. I'm now a Kraken season ticket holder. I'm a Seahawks yeah. season ticket holder. Uh, full-time job on the side. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, it is. I, I love, uh, for me, uh, any place I can find where my, where my friends who, uh, you know, this Sean, like you kind of have to give up on some of your friends for a while when you're raising kids and building a business. And like, I, I feel like I'm finally getting back to a part of my life where I can bring my, this group of people who I miss dearly together. And so I spend a lot of, that's where I spend my time. And I just yeah. use the football games and the, and the soccer games and the, and the uh, hockey games to bring yeah. together. Well, I hope I get to see you. That's like a treat for me. My ultimate question for you, Raj, I'll say Rajiv for your parents. Right on. Um, is what fuels you? What's your ultimate get out of bed fuel? Uh, I, I, you know, I think a lot of people want to have a dent, leave a dent in the universe, Sean. Like, uh, and I think going all the way back to that city, city group story, I told you, like when I realized like, oh, everybody's just like me, uh, that I have a chance to do it. And I've been blessed. Like I got it. I got it. I have a, a lot of gifts here that a lot of people don't get. I don't want to squander that chance. And so we're going to take a swing at it. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, at least I'm going to know I gave it everything I had. So it's I, working. I, that's what I want. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com to provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You. Thank you.